Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Sassy Chost. Sassy Chost. Why the hell am I singing about Sassy Chost? Is a question that'll be answered in just a bit. But first... Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Joyelle Nicole. Because obviously you want somebody to be able to take a shit while another person's cooking sausage, you know? (laughs) That and more. But before that, I want to talk about one of my new favorite online stores, Thrive Market. I have had such a great personal experience getting my food, my my kitchen supplies, my bathroom supplies, you know, your grocery shopping at thrivemarket.com. Now, we are talking the best, the most organic, non-toxic, BPA-free, non-GMO, no artificial ingredients sorts of products at 25 to 50% off shipped right to your door. You know what else you can do? You can do price comparisons right there on Thrive Market's site to see the retail price versus what they're charging. You know, compare it to, say, Whole Foods or any place you might have to go out to go to the grocery. You know, they cut out the middleman so they can pass the savings right on to their members. I was so excited. The box came so quickly. I got myself a bunch of Laura bars and some green superfood mix that I've been making smoothies with. They had grain-free cat food for donkey. I've got all kinds of soups and soaps, all kinds of stuff in the bathroom now. You can do specific searches. For example, if you're vegan, you can curate so that you're only looking at their vegan products. So you'll get $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and a 30-day trial membership if you go to thrivemarket.com slash risk. And keep in mind, their prices are already 25 to 50% below retail. You're going to be amazed at the quality and the selection at thrivemarket.com slash risk for $60 off and free shipping and a 30-day trial membership at thrivemarket.com slash risk. Now here's the show.
Sassy Jost. Sassy Jost. Once again, I'm singing about Sassy Jost. But why? Well, we'll get to that in just a bit. But first, hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Mono Deluxe behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Live at Caveat. We are so thrilled with our new home in New York City. Caveat, it's on the Lower East Side on Clinton Street. We will next be there on March 22nd. Fran Torado from the fabulous podcast Food for Thought will be there. Jezebel Express, the uh, burlesque queen, will be there. Amy Gordon, a fabulous actress and writer. And Gigi Lee as well, storyteller around about town. Going to be a fabulous night on March 22nd at Caveat. But this episode features recent stories told there at Caveat. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the hilarious stand-up comedian David Drake. But before that, someone we've wanted to have on the show for a while now. She really is something else. She is also a stand-up comedian based in Brooklyn. You can find her on Twitter, at Joyelle Nicole. Here she is now. This is Joyelle Nicole with a story we call Railroaded. Hey guys, what's up? Hey, chillin'. Oh, yay, I'm so happy. Uh, it's 2018, and I'm happy with the fact that I'm a crazy bitch. Um, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we're here with it. I like how, I be- look, I believe you, I believe you. Um, this is how crazy I am, though. Let's test it. I've been mason the face twice. Nah, but you know what? Oh, she was like, she had to up the ante, okay. She rude as hell. She said, bitch, I got maced twice last week. What? Say something to me. Well, not in 2018, but I was like, yo, I've been maced twice. Only crazy people have been maced twice, so I need to come to terms with that, because it's like, you know, the first time you can kind of explain away. (laughs) By the second time, even your best friend's raising her eyebrows like, bitch, you need to get your life together. (laughs) Mace me once, shame on you. Mace me twice, I should probably shut the fuck up. I talk a lot of shit. I am, I'm an asshole. Um, <laughs> first time I got Mace, it wasn't my fault. Um, I'm, a, I'm a black girl from New Jersey, and I grew up in a white neighborhood, so like once a week, all the little black kids in the neighborhood would go to the roller skating rink. we just have our little black roller skating night, you know? And occasionally, fight would break out. And now this is like, the 90s, right? So this is before the internet, this is before world star hip hop. When a fight breaks out, you run towards that shit, okay? <laughs> we didn't have entertainment. This is free entertainment. What? So I'm with me and my cousin Troy. We ran towards this fight. We're on the outskirts of the brawl, right? We can't even see what's going on, but we looking, we like, yeah, we got the energy. We bouncing up and down. All right, cool. They fighting. <laughs> then all of a sudden, I just get smacked in the face. Like, I'm inhaling fire. My nose is running, my eyes are watering. I was like, what the fuck just happened? I'm crumbling down to the ground. I look out 
onto the battlefield, which is this skating rink parking lot. All these little children are just rolling around on the ground. It looks like a post-Civil War battlefield. I sit down on the curb next to my cousin, try to look at him. I was like, what just happened? He was like, yo, I think we just got mazed. I was like, awesome. We high-fived the shit. Before the internet. We <laughs> Cops maced the entire crowd. That wasn't my fault. Second time was a little more my fault. Um, I uh, moved to New York and I lived with a gay guy. My first apartment in New York. And I mean, we hated each other. Not because he was gay, obviously. I'm a black female. Me and gay dudes go together like Rama Lama Lama. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Are you kidding me right now? The problem was he wasn't the cool kind of gay. He wasn't like the let's go shoe shopping and kiki and talk shit type of gay. He was the cunty one. Not the fun cunty, like the won't give you the extra pack of peanuts on the airplane cunty, like what? Those are deltas, not yours. Why are you acting like that? I met him on Craigslist, that's how I found this apartment. I can feel the judgment in the room, fuck y'all. I'm a stand-up comedian, bitch. We don't have a paper trail, okay? I needed to find something under the table. So I found this apartment on Craigslist. This is my first apartment, so I was like, oh, just rearing, ready to go. So my only two requirements were, I'd be able to have sex on my bed whenever I wanted, and be able to smoke weed on my bed. Those are my only two requirements, you know? You know what I'm saying? I'm just, I don't have high standards. <laughs> so in this Craigslist ad, it said 420 friendly. I was like, yeah, let's go meet him. <laughs> so I met my roommate, Jamal. So I walk in, and immediately I was just like, oh, this is gonna be cool. Cause I was like, oh, he's gay. I was like, oh, this is gonna be great. But he was like a little baby gay. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna take him under my wing, like a little baby bird. <laughs> and it was awesome. I was like, he, we were about the same type of build, you know? And I was like, oh, I hope he likes to dress and drag. We can go shopping. Um, <laughs> he had beautiful locks. His skin was gorgeous. It was like a Snickers bar. I was like, oh, we, gonna, we gonna have some fun together. But then immediately the red flag started popping up, right? Now, let me tell you about this apartment, because Gaston mentioned it before. This was a railroad apartment. By a round of applause, who knows what a railroad apartment is? Okay, yeah. I'm just gonna say this. Whoever invented them can kiss the inside of my ass, all right? <laughs> Deep in the inside. You can't live in a railroad apartment with a stranger? Ugh. Oh, it's terrible. I'll tell you the setup. You walk into the apartment, and directly to the left, there's a kitchen, right? And right next to this kitchen was the bathroom, the only bathroom in the apartment, because obviously you want somebody to be able to take a shit while another person's cooking sausage, you know? <laughs> Just want to marinate those smells together. So that was to the left. Then you go to the right. So to the right, just giant living room. It was a really large living room for a Brooklyn apartment, right? And this was where Jamal decided to have his living space. He wanted it in the living room. So he was just kind of living in this apartment like it was a studio, right? So you go through the living room. This is his room. And then next you get into like the first bedroom. And I say bedroom very loosely because the shit ain't got no goddamn fucking like windows, right? It's ridiculous. It's like a box, you know what I'm saying? 
Like they would have hid Jews in the Holocaust in this type of situation, you know what I'm saying? It's that type of thing. It was like, what is this? You can't live, if you were an adult bitch, you would have, it would be your shoe closet, but no. I was like, somebody's gonna live in here? You might as well line these walls with mattresses because I'm about to go crazy in this bitch with no sunlight. So that was the middle room. That was his storage closet. And then the back area was the room he was renting out. That's the master bedroom of a railroad apartment. So essentially, if you're a couple, the middle bedroom is supposed to be for the kids, the back bedroom is supposed to be for the parents, so the parents could just walk in because kids don't need privacy. Fuck them. <laughs> so I was excited because I had all the privacy. I had my own exit that would go out, and I would come from my room out into the hallway into the front area to use the bathroom. This is where all the shit hit the fan. Little bit about me. Uh, I have the bladder of a Shih Tzu puppy. <laughs> I pee a lot. Every time I had to pee, I had to go in this dude's room, essentially. So think about that. Every time I gotta pee, I gotta bust into this dude's living situation. He can't even get a good masturbation on. Like, you think about that? You can't ever set up you like this fucking peeing ass bitch. <laughs> It's gonna come and knock on the door in any moment. That's what I thought in retrospect. So he was slowly going crazy. But he immediately told me why he didn't like me when I first moved in. I didn't ask, but he let me know. I'd only been living there for two days. He was like, we need to talk. I was like, okay. I came into his room and he's like, the reason I don't like you. That's how he started the conversation. You know that shit ain't gonna be fruitful at all. <laughs> the reason I don't like you is because you come into the kitchen in the morning talking about good morning, darling, like you on Broadway. <laughs> I was confused. I was like, don't gay dudes like Broadway? What are we talking about? <laughs> Very confusing conversation. <laughs> it just escalated from there. He would do stupid stuff to just get on my nerves. And what I realized, I was like, oh, somebody must have been bankrolling this apartment for him. And then he realized, oh, he don't need all this space. He needs to rent it out. Because he was treating me like I had come into the situation. Not that he put the ad on Craigslist, you know? He wanted my money, but he didn't want me to stay there. And what he didn't understand is, I'm a stand-up comic. I write you a check and the shit clears. Bitch, I'm staying, all right? <laughs> this could be American Horror Story Murder House. I'm still gonna stay. <laughs> I wrote you a two-month check. <laughs> you got my money. So he didn't know. He, he would just do stupid stuff to just, like, get on my nerves. Like, every two freaking seconds, just something new. He would throw my checks in the garbage that would come in the mail. That was sweet. Another thing he would do, he would just kind of like call me names. Because he was in his early 20s, right? So he didn't know how to insult people. He'd be like, you ugly bitch. I was like, please, nigga, I know I'm cute. Why are you talking like... <laughs> I have mirrors. What are we... What are we talking about right now? <laughs> like, you look like a man. Whatever, bitch. I know I'm cute. It doesn't matter. <laughs> He didn't know how to insult properly. And then another thing is like, I'm an asshole, I'm a super petty bitch, you know what I'm saying? Especially when it's provoked in me, I don't like it, but you know, it's, I'm petty, I'll admit it. 
Like, for example, right now, my recent roommate, we having a fight, and when I left the house today, I took the Amazon Fire Stick remote with me. <laughs> she on the last episode of The Handmaid's Tale, this bitch is pissed. <laughs> Texting me every 10 minutes, do you know where that remote is? Nope. <laughs> I'm petty, man. I'm super petty. We would get into crazy arguments. This is the risky part. I'm going to admit my fault in the situation. I may or may not have called them the F word a couple times. Hey, I'll admit that shit. I'm petty. You brought it out of me. You know what I'm saying? So we're arguing back and forth, and I'm just saying it over and over because I know it's getting into his head because he's a baby gay, so he even know how to handle himself, right? And I was just like, don't fuck with me, right? I'm petty. I'm smart, I'm a comedian, and I'm an asshole. You don't want to fight with me verbally, all right? <laughs> so I would just get into him, and then the next level he took it to to fuck with me was locking me out of the bathroom. That's akin to torture for me, all right? And after a while, I would just like get so desperate to pee that I got a bowl in my room that I would pee in. Yeah. I don't know if you ever peed in a bowl as an adult without a penis. It's a very degrading experience. I was even Googling like child potty training things. I went on Amazon, I was gonna buy one, but then I was like, bitch, get that Thai food container and put that shit on the floor and stop playing. I was squatting over one of those, berating myself like, bitch, you have a bachelor's degree. From Boston College. Really? It's like, you should probably kill yourself after this pee. Or figure out how to get a Japanese businessman to pay you to do this shit. And then you shake it off. He would just come in my room, he was super rude. He would come in my room sometimes and uh, just open the windows. That was one of the things he liked to do to get a cross breeze in the apartment. He would just come and open my windows. We lived on the third floor. The windows didn't have a screen. It's like, were you raised in a barn? He would come and open them all the way. I was like, bitch, a bird can fly in this motherfucker. He's like, a shit on my bed. What are you doing right now? It's like, I'm not Snow White. Close that goddamn window. What the hell is wrong with you? And so he kept locking me out of the bathroom. I'm peeing in this bowl. He eventually found the pee bowl. I left it for him. He thought I was peeing on everything in the apartment. I was so happy I caused this paranoia. So I hated him. One day I came home, he was livid. He's at, met me at the door. Pissed off, I could see it in his face. Face all scrunched up. I was like, ooh, he mad. <laughs> He's like, my dish rag smells like urine. Like, sounds like a personal problem. What you, <laughs> what you want me to do about it? Like, you pissed on my dish rag, didn't you, bitch? Oh. Pissed on your dish rag, what? A grown ass woman, you accusing me of peeing on your dish rag? No, I didn't pee on your dish rag. What I did do was pour my pee onto your dish rag. And all of your dishes. Because I hate you. 
And I'm petty. And how else am I supposed to get the pee bowl clean? Um, can't let that build up. So this shit got so crazy that I, to go to the bathroom, I would start video recording it because I was like, eventually something like shit's gonna hit the fan. I got some mace. My mother even bought me a taser on the black market. I don't even know where she found that shit. <laughs> it's just escalating. I was only there for two months. <laughs> oh, I go hard, bitches. <laughs> you don't want to bring the Betty bitch out of me. Ooh. I drive you crazy. <laughs> so on the very last day, I'm about to move out the next day, right? We're just getting to this epic argument, same old shit, you know, and he's just, this is his thing, he had locked me out of uh, my room before, because what he would do is, if I'd leave my room, come to the door, knock on the door to go to the bathroom, he'd run to the back, lock my bedroom door, lock the front door, now I'm locked out of the apartment. Yes, super petty. And I was like, all right, cool, we petty, we petty. But this night, I had a show. So I was like, look, Jamal, come on, son. Like, I'm not here for the games. I got a show, I'm moving out tomorrow. Can we just, can I just pee and then go about my business? I actually had to ask a human being this. He was like, no. He was just on one that night. He was like, no, no, you're not walking through. You're not walking through his room, right? I was like, ah, oh, here we go. I was like, I'm not going into the hallway because you are going to lock the door. I'm not doing this right now. So we're arguing back and forth, arguing back and forth. And he had his arm behind his back. And I was like, what you got your arm behind your back for? I'm sitting here like, is he about to smack me or some shit like that? I'm standing back. I'm like, do you have a knife? What the hell's going on? Because I'm holding my mace in my hand. I'm out with that shit. I was like, bitch, I got this shit. What you want to do? <laughs> And then finally, uh, when the argument uh, got to its climax, I confessed that I was the one that had poured the pee onto his <laughs> dishes. He maced me in my fucking face. That's what happened. <laughs> I earned that shit. Oh, he maced the hell out of me. This time was not like the first time. I tell you guys, it felt like I got, if the first time I got slapped in the face, like I was a cop and the mace was Zsa Zsa Gabor. This time, I got punched in the face. Like this mace was Mike Tyson. Like it was just right in my face. I'm inhaling fire, right? My nose, which is usually stuffy, if you can tell the post-nasal drip voice, was just streaming mucus like Niagara Falls, right? I'm crying, my eyes felt like they were bleeding. I'm crumpled down on the ground, and then I saw him coming at me like he was gonna punch me in the face. I saw him through my maced eyes. I clicked my taser and snapped that crackle pop. He heard that shit and ran out of the goddamn apartment. I was like, yeah, bitch, let's go. So he ran out of the apartment. I had to call the cops at this point. I have a fully maced face, right? I can't see anything. It was like a Tuesday night in Brooklyn. Must have been a slow night because every cop from that precinct showed up. They must have sent out a text like, you want to see this mace face, bitch? Let's go. Let's go see what this is happening. So I'm like sitting there maced. I can't see the cops. I can just feel their energy. They're all tiny and angry. Every cop in Brooklyn's like five foot six. I felt like I was in the Shire. <laughs> they had to take me to the precinct, and Jamal accused me of macing him, right? 
Mind you, he's completely able to see and everything. I'm just ridiculous. I'm blind. I'm like Stevie Wonder walking through the streets. <laughs> and so the cop told me, he was like, I'm sorry, but um, I have to put you in the jail cell. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I apologize. But So imagine me fully maced, arms behind my back in handcuffs. Now I have to go into a jail cell. I start freaking out, panicking. I was like, you don't understand. This is why I don't commit crimes. Not because I'm a good person, but because I'm claustrophobic. <laughs> I can't be in a jail cell. And they were like, we're so sorry. So they locked me in this jail cell. I'm in there. And then one of the cops from before, he's just pacing back and forth. He's pissed. He was like, why did he mace you? I want to figure out why he maced you. He's like, were you guys sleeping together? Is this why he maced you? Is this a domestic violence situation? And through my mace eyes, I was like, no, we weren't sleeping together. He's gay. <laughs> and it was like a light bulb popped over the cop's hand. He was like, oh, I was wondering what type of straight dude would mace a bitch. <laughs> I was like, is this cop acknowledging that a real man punches a woman in the face? <laughs> what kind of crazy shit is that? So in reflection on the story, I ended up moving out the next day. Everything was fine. Uh, I sued him in small claims court. And yeah, I got a couple hundred bucks off of that shit. And in retrospect, if I look back, what would I change about the situation? I would have maced his ass first. My name is Joyelle. Thank you guys for listening to me. I'm doing it because I happen to like nuts. If it bugs, you leave the room. It's as much my room as it is yours. Hey, then you do your thing over there, and I'll do my thing over here. And just so there won't be any misunderstanding. <laughs> this is your part of the room. This is my part of the room. This is no man's land. TV set. It's my outlet, and you want to know something else? I can't hear you through no man's land. We well, better listen a lot harder, because this will really interest you. What? The bathroom's on my side of no man's land. <laughs> Eight years ago, I was, uh, I was living in Chicago, and I was going through like a little uh, steely phase where I wasn't paying full price for a lot of things. Uh, sometimes I was way off by the whole amount. Um, my favorite thing to steal is food, because it's very uh, easy to justify stealing food, right? You need it to live, it's in a place, go get it. You know, very easy. And my favorite little trick with stealing food is I, there was this grocery store around the house and they had self-checkout machines. So I, I, would, I would bring the thing that I wanted to ring up and I, I'd ring it up as bananas at the self-checkout machine. And the way to do that is you just space the label away from the scanner and now the machine doesn't know what that is. It's like, hey, what is this thing? 
And you just gotta be like, ah, don't worry about that. That is bananas, right? Now you're paying for groceries at 69 cents a pound. That's, uh, you can take that home with you. You guys can <laughs> take it on the road. Risk for the road. Uh, <laughs> once, we just can't all do it at the same time. So that's the only thing to worry about. Don't mess us up for each other. Uh, <laughs> you'll confuse a cashier. Hey, we sold every banana in five seconds. All right. They're all still here. Hmm. Well, I don't give a shit. I'm a cashier. Yeah. But some cashiers do give a shit. I, um, I, about, uh, I, I've been ringing up things as bananas for about a year, and uh, nothing had happened. Everything was great. Uh, when one day I, I was ringing up all my food, banana, 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 and then I got this pasta sauce, and it was a very expensive $10 pasta sauce. So I was, uh, that's bananas, you know? And the self-checkout lady, she caught me. And I didn't know this about the self-checkout ladies, but apparently they have a screen in front of them that show where all the different uh, self-checkout machines are doing. So she's looking at that, and she saw one, you know, they, they're just listing the items. So it's just like normal, 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 and then one that was just banana, 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 banana. <laughs> Like someone just rang up banana 52 times in a row. <laughs> Something's going on, I'm gonna check it out. So she came up as I was ringing uh, the pasta sauce up and she looked at me and she's like, sir, that is pasta sauce, that is not bananas, right? Which put me in the very weird position where I now have to pretend like that is a mistake that a human being can make. Yeah. Oh, that's pasta sauce? <laughs> this whole time? Oh! Guess I'm just one of those guys. Doesn't know what things are. What is this, a raccoon? Who let a raccoon up here? Yeah. She's looking through all my bags. She's like, sir, there's not a single banana in here. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm going to jail. I'm going to jail for saying things are bananas when they're not bananas. Which is the weakest thing you can go to jail for. There's like double murder, regular murder, sexual assault, regular assault, and then way down here is banana fraud. Right after lying to your mom. Hanging out for too long. Yeah. I, uh, I just, I couldn't believe she caught me. Because this is like a cashier lady, right? This is a minimum wage job. You're not supposed to care about your minimum wage jobs, all right? I've worked every minimum wage job there is. I have never cared about my minimum wage job, all right? I used to work in a department store, and there was one day where a guy, he walked in, he picked up a pile of coats, walked out. Not one of us stopped him. We are all just like, yeah, fuck this place. Take the coats, take the mittens, take the whole register. I don't give a shit. It's a minimum wage job. I hate it. Yeah. Uh, so I was like reeling. I got the one grocery store unicorn who cares about what's going on here. Yeah. Um, but I'm nervous. I'm going to jail now. And uh, she calls over the manager. And the manager, he, uh, he starts walking over. And then in a stroke of luck, a younger, hotter cashier also calls over the manager. And uh, the manager decides to go talk to her. <laughs> And this old cashier lady that had been talking to me, apparently this happens all the time, because she was like, ah, oh, nah, not this bullshit again. Yep. And then she looked at me and she was like, you have a nice day. And then I walked out of there with two bags of groceries, rung up as bananas. Yeah. 
because of misogyny. Yeah. So it's not all bad. Uh, Some people are getting some food. Yeah. Uh, so that's an interesting story because I learned nothing and there were no consequences. Yeah. 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 I did learn one thing, and that is I'm going to stop bringing up Grosha's bananas, right? That was the mistake here. Uh, from here on out, I'm just going to walk out with the stuff, right? The mistake was that I gave them any money at all. You know? So what I started doing is I started going into the grocery store, I would pick up the thing that I wanted, and then I would go. And I did that for two years, and no one ever stopped me. And that's what privilege is. Uh, I would walk in with armloads of groceries, and I'd wave to the staff. I'd say, hi, hello, and then I'd walk out, and no one would stop me. And I did that for two years. And then uh, one day, uh, I walked into Whole Foods, I grabbed a salad, and I walked out, and uh, this security person stopped me, and they were like, uh, sir, did you pay for that? And I had not gotten caught for so long, I forgot that this was even a thing. <laughs> like, sir, did you pay for that? I was like, no, I stole this. Uh, what, what, what's the problem? He's like, everything, everything is the problem. You have to come with me now. And uh, I don't know if you guys uh, <laughs> have ever robbed Whole Foods before, but they bring you to a little jail behind the meat department. Uh, so they dragged me to this <laughs> Whole Foods jail and, uh, and they sit you down there like the principal's office and, you, and it was very embarrassing. I felt very much embarrassed because uh, this is a silly thing. This is a silly place for me to be. I'm a grown man. I have an apartment and bills and a fiance uh, who would be so mad and I'm worried about the police. <laughs> But I'm also very worried about the fiance, because like the police will take you to jail, but they're not gonna be like disappointed, you know? They're not gonna like <laughs> slap cuffs on you, like, ah, oh, don't look at me. You're better than this, you know? I'm like worried about police and fiance, you know? So it's like a very like scary place to be. And, uh, and they take my picture and they take my ID and they put me in the system and then they come back to reveal their punishment. And they're like, all right, we're not sending you to jail, but you are banned from Whole Foods for life. You can never come back. And I was so relieved that I wasn't going to jail. I was like, oh great, I can never come back to a Whole Foods, sure, right? And then the second I got out of the Whole Foods, I was like, wow, but you gotta go to a Whole Foods, right? I can't not go. When you look like this, you have to go. Like, I look like I was raised by Whole Foods. I, I need to go. That's where all the things I like are. Yeah. But it was a moment for me where I was like, this is silly, I'm gonna stop stealing. And I did, for the most part, I stopped stealing. I, uh, some things you still gotta steal. <laughs> if it's over $5 and it can fit in my pocket, I I'm gonna take it, you know? <laughs> Ginger shot, whoa, who do you think you are? You're not $6, you're going in the pocket. <laughs> things like that. Uh, but for the most part, I, I lead a clean life. Uh, and then eight years go by and uh, I'm back in Chicago for the album that Kevin uh, mentioned. I, I'm recording that. Uh, it's a big thing. Uh, it's something I've worked very hard on. 
I decide to go uh, the day of the album to Export Fitness. There's an Export Fitness uh, by where I was staying. And I walk in and I, I go to buy a day pass. And they're like, hey, listen, instead of a day pass, why don't you just buy 14 energy drinks? Uh, and I thought that was weird. But then my buddy Jonah, who also works at Export, he's like, yeah, they have a quota of energy drinks that they have to sell every month. So this guy was like, all right, it's the same price as a day pass. I get to meet my quota. You get 14 energy drinks, right? So I was like, all right, I'm going to be in Chicago two days. That's seven energy drinks a day. Uh, I guess I'll live Chicago like I've never lived Chicago before. Yeah. So I work out, and then I leave with 14 organic energy drinks in this big brown bag that they give me. And then I'm hungry. So I, I walk out, and I look around, and, and across the street is that Whole Foods that I got caught in eight years ago. And I was like, well, enough time has passed. I'm sure this will be fine. Uh, so I enter the Whole Foods with my big brown bag. And apparently that's a red flag for security. You're not supposed to walk in with uh, bags. So I, I walk around and I get my food. And I pay for the food. And then I go to leave. And then I'm stopped by security. And they're like, uh, sir, do you have some unpaid merchandise in there? And I was kind of cocky because I, I knew I paid for everything. So I, I had like a little funk to my voice. I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I pay for all this, you know, and I, bam, look, and I gave them the receipt, and then they looked at the receipt, and they looked at everything in the bag, and then they pointed at these 14 organic energy drinks, and they're like, what about all this? And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I went to export earlier, and instead of a day pass, they were like, hey, just buy 14 energy drinks, because they have quotas that they have to meet, and that's a thing that they do, and as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, this sounds so stupid. This sounds worse than if I just said I stole everything, right? So they take me back to the jail behind the meat department. <laughs> like, we gotta get to the bottom of this. Uh, and so they're looking through the camera to see if I, I stole all the drinks. Uh, but while they do that, they run my ID to make sure that I'd never stolen from a Whole Foods before. <laughs> and in doing that, sure enough, I come up and the, uh, the fun fact here is the security guard who had originally caught me had banned me from Whole Foods until the year 4,417. <laughs> That's from Jesus to now, plus 400 years. They want to make sure I was super dead. Which, how cocky of Whole Foods do you think they're going to be around for another 2,400 years? What else is still around for 2,400? Sandals? Whole Foods thinks it's better than sandals. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Movies don't even touch the year 4,417, you know? They go like a uh, hundred years into the future and even then everybody's like a sentient robot or a clone or a sewer mutant and they're all fighting, right? That's a hundred years from now. The sentient robots are fighting the sewer clones and still somehow 2,300 years after that there is still a Whole Foods and I'm not allowed to go. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very nervous. The guy's like, all right, we see that you didn't steal anything, but you are trespassing and we have to do something about that. And uh, I'm very nervous. Like, this is the night of my album recording and, and you don't get a second shot at that. If I don't show up, those people won't come back. I have failed at a, a dream of mine because I stole a salad eight years ago. Uh, so I'm very nervous. I'm sweating. And the guy's like, all right, well, we do have to punish you. And then he walked over to the computer and he added 600 years to my sentence. <laughs> Which sounds like a joke, but I filled out paperwork that said I would not return to Whole Foods for 3,000 years. So, uh, 
But uh, we'll see. I'm never going to stop going. So maybe the story's not over yet. But thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. This is Blind Pilot behind me now, and we just heard from comedian David Drake. You can find him on Twitter at the David Drake. Before that, we heard a little uh, interstitial, a little Brady Bunch-inspired interstitial by our episode editor Jeff Barr, and now it's time for me to sing "Sassy Chost." Sassy Cholst. Why the fuck do I keep singing about Sassy Cholst? Well, it's because Sassy Cholst is one of the people who pre-ordered the Risk book at theriskbook.com and then emailed me the proof, you know, a screenshot of the confirmation that she had pre-ordered the book. And so she won this little gift of me singing about her on this episode. And you know what? We are going to continue doing this. We are going to tell everyone out there, listen, listen up right now. If you pre-order the book and then you email me at kevin at risk-show.com, a little screenshot showing that you too pre-ordered the book, you might win a little gift too. We're coming up with all kinds of little funny things I'm doing. I made someone a, a voicemail for his, you know, the answering his phone. I wrote a, a mini opera <laughs> for another winner the other day. So pre-order that book, folks. I, you know, I'm, I'm really worried because my parents are looking forward to getting the book and they, they've never heard the podcast. And there's absolutely filthy stories about me in it, so I'm, I'm afraid I might have a nervous breakdown come July when the book finally comes out. But the thing of it is, we can get on the New York Times bestseller list if we have enough pre-orders. So between now and July, we need you, we need all your friends, we need everybody who likes Risk to pre-order that book. Go to theriskbook.com. It is an amazing book. Many of our very best stories and some new ones you've never heard before, plus interviews with the storytellers. You gotta go get it at theriskbook.com. And again, email me with that proof of purchase shot, and you might win something like Sessie Cholst did in this episode. Now, I want to tell you about another podcast, How to Be Amazing, with my very good friend and fellow member of the state, 
Michael Ian Black. It's a podcast where Michael sits down with some of today's most provocative writers, entertainers, artists, innovative thinkers, and politicians for humorous, thought-provoking conversations about how they got to be, wait for it, amazing. Some of the most influential voices and minds are doling out advice, sharing stories of success and failure, going all Oprah on each other. Whether it's people you know like Ira Glass, Amy Schumer, the Barefoot Contessa, or people you might not have heard of like a bounty hunter turned opera singer, Carl Tanner, each episode will draw you in and inspire you to be well amazing. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Radio Public, Stitcher, and more. Finally, you already know that we at Risk and the Story Studio have been using Stamps.com for years, and we love it. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs, so there's no need to lease an expensive postage meter, and there's no long-term commitments. Right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and that digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com and enter RISK. Our final story on today's episode comes from a very dear friend of the show. Richard Cardillo is an amazing guy. He is actually on what I think is one of the very best episodes of Risk ever made, and that is the one called The Best of Risk number 12. Richard can be found on Twitter, at Richard Cardillo, and here he is now at the Risk Live show at Caveat in Manhattan with the story we call Peru and Privilege. So the first thing I did after boarding the airplane on that hot, sweltering August afternoon was run to the tiny little bathroom and rip off my long flowing religious habit which was just drenched in sweat not only from the heat but from my nerves I kept meditating on that line from the gospel of St. John where Jesus said in a little while and you will see me no more and then in a little while you will see me again and I was ready to start this little while where people were going to see me no more. I was 22, 1980. I had just gotten away from the ticket counter where I cashed in my one-way ticket on my way to Lima, Peru to start my new life as a Catholic missionary monk. <laughs> Craziness. <laughs> 22 years old, but I had already been in the monastery for five years before that, when I was 16. 
inside the monastery. It sounds like an old 1950s prison movie. Hey, we're sending you a message from the inside. But I was stuck on the inside. At the tender age of 16, I was so afraid of being gay, so afraid coming from this big Catholic family, and so filled with shame, I figured I could pray the gay away. So I was my own conversion therapy on myself. I decided I was going to do this, so I enter a Catholic monastery and immediately take a vow of celibacy, promising I will never have sexual relations with another human being for the rest of my life. Of course, because every 16-year-old boy knows what they want to do with their penis for the rest of their lives. <laughs> I was hiding out. I was just so afraid. When I went into the monastery, everything changed. My identity changed. The way I acted changed. My name changed. My name's Richard. For 14 years that I was in the monastery, I was known as Brother Mark. So I just had to change and sublimate and say, this isn't going to work. And everything changed except that internal desire that I always had. And that wasn't going anywhere. But I made my vow. I kept channeling the words of Horton. Not the saint, the elephant. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. Brother Mark will be faithful 100%. And I just wanted to follow my vows. I just wanted to live up to them. And I did. I was faithful to that vow of celibacy. Yes, I did masturbate. A lot. But I always went to confession. I always did. I always did. It wasn't going away. They assigned me to teach in this old boys Catholic school in Harlem, and it just wasn't going away. And all I kept saying is, if I get harder work, this will work. If I just sublimate my desires in this real hard work, it'll work. And all of these gay desires will go away. If they can just send me to a place where people have real astronomical issues and problems in their life, my issues are going to seem trivial. So I kept petitioning my superiors, please send me anywhere that's really, really hard. So one morning I'm in my cell in the monastery. It's not a prison cell, but it felt like one. One morning I'm in my cell and I get a little knock on the door and it's my superior and he said, Brother Mark, do you speak Spanish? And I said, well, high school Spanish. He said, well, I think you better learn because we're sending you to the missions in Peru. And that started the missionary life and that started my second chapter of invisibility. Because Brother Mark now became Hermano Marcos. <laughs> I land in Peru. The first, after a couple of months of real intense language training and a couple of different things to learn about working with people from other cultures, I get assigned to my first first assignment, and it's in this poor rural fishing village about 200 kilometers outside the capital city of Lima, and it stunk. There was a fish factory there that would burn fish meal so that they could make fertilizer for plants, and that was the main thing the village did. So you smelt the village about 10 kilometers before you got there. Our monastery was at the foothill of a mountain one of the Andes. And I settled in there, but I would work on the top of the hill in this little village called Pamplona Alta. High Pamplona, high plain. So <laughs> there I was. And I would go up that hill in the evenings to go to like prayers with the people up there. And you'd always see the whole side of the hill flecked with these little fires going from burning their garbage because there was no garbage collection. It just was every family for themselves burning their garbage. 
to this day, I live in New York City here when I'm driving and I'm stuck on a side street behind a garbage truck who's just filling up and you got to wait. I say this little, little act of gratitude to the universe that I have somebody picking up my garbage still to this day. So I would help out in this village as much as I can. And the first person I met was Gonzala, this woman who was the same exact age as I was. She was the consummate community organizer. She knew what was going on. She had her finger on the pulse of the people. And I told her, please keep your eyes on me as a gringo if I'm doing anything to offend people. And she said, well, now that you mention it, <laughs> since you moved in, you always go up to all the little mamas with their little babies in the papooses or in little blankets, and you play with the baby. Hey, baby, how are you, baby? What's como se llama? What's the name of your baby? She said, could you please stop asking for the name of the babies? And I said, why? She said, 50% of the children born in this village die before their first birthday. So the mothers don't officially name a baby until they know that baby is going to flourish. So just call the baby Nene. I said, okay, I'll do that, fine, no problem. She also wrangled me into two enormous jobs within my first six months of getting there. The first job, she wanted me to open up an orphanage with her. Peru was going through a horrible time, hyperinflation, real severe poverty. It was in the throes of terrorist violence. Sanitation was horrible. Everything was rampantly growing in the wrong places there, and it was horrible. So I finally decided, yes, I could do this, but I need help. We started this orphanage, and that's what she wanted me to start, for all the children that were coming from the provinces who had lost their parents to the terrorist violence. And she said, I want to put in three restrictions to that orphanage. One, the kids have to be between the ages of 6 and 14. Two, they had to have lost their parents, either the terrorists or the military police, who were just as bad. And three, they have to have a job. These kids went out and worked in the markets, flower girls, matchbook sellers, kids who would dance for the tourists. They worked, and they would come home, and they'd count their money, and I'd take care of it. The other thing Gonzalo was was this consummate, consummate community builder. Obviously, we didn't know the birthdays of any kid in that orphanage. It was impossible to know. So on their saint's day or name day, she would always make this special little round cake for each kid and decorate the top with something special that's pertinent to that kid. So if a kid was into music, she'd put on pan pipes and little notes. Or if a kid was a shoeshine boy, she'd put a little shoebox on the top of it and decorate it that way. She was great. She had these kids eaten out of her hand, and they loved her for that. The second job she asked me to do was to become the community health organizer. I was an English teacher. What did I know about community health? But I said, okay, I'll help with it. I took this six-week course in all things rural medicine. My Bible was this book called Where There Is No Doctor. So I tried to learn because there was no doctor for at least 100 kilometers. There was no hospital. There was no clinic. So I got pretty good at fixing bumps and bruises. I even learned how to give stitches to people. It was amazing. I could do that, but the one thing I could not do was take care of any of the illnesses connected to poverty. These kids were getting dysentery and giardia and salmonella. They were getting chronic diarrhea, and I couldn't do anything to break that pattern. But I stayed invisible 
trying to do what I could and sublimating into that. About six months after that, I was hit with the most horrible experience of my life, even up until now. I contracted cholera. It was horrible. The most debilitating thing I felt. I was dehydrating, my skin was tightening, and in two days, I lost 14 pounds. I couldn't move. I didn't know what things were. I was hallucinating. It was just getting worse and worse and worse. And I couldn't leave the bathroom because it was just pure liquid diarrhea. You know, I, I do a lot of storytelling now. I'm all over the place. And I've gotten used to that. Most comics and most storytellers, everybody has a requisite poop story. You know, you gotta tell your poop story. I guess this is my requisite poop story, but I can't tease out a lot of humor from it. Uh, the State Department knew that I was a gringo and I was sick because the news got to them and they kept good tabs on us. So they sent an ambulance up to the village, pick me up and take me to the capital of Lima and put me in the best hospital in the nation. And immediately they get the IV drip in me and within 12 hours I'm already coming out of things and gaining my weight back and feeling pretty good too. I got five days of rest and then I went back to my village and I went back almost like a hero. The ambulance took me back and the village was all out to greet me. They had hung a sign, Bienvenidos Hermano Marcos, welcome Brother Mark, you're back. And I go in for a big fiesta in my honor and it felt great and we were getting along. And in a short amount of time, I received the ugly, ugly news that in my five-day absence, 45 children had died of cholera in that village. I froze. I couldn't do anything. I didn't know what to do. And then I started sputtering to the village elder who was with me, Por qué? Why did this happen? Why? What's going on? How come this goes on like this? And he said, oh, hermano, es fácil, brother. It's so easy to know why this is. And I said, why? Why? He said, porque tú eres lo que eres, y somos lo que somos, because you are who you are, and we are who we are. And that's when I learned the most powerful message about privilege. I knew I was alive because somebody could take care of me from my country like these people couldn't get. I knew now that I couldn't make it on my own without the help of other people and they had nobody like that at all in their lives and I just couldn't take it the survivor guilt was just setting in like crazy and I started down the hill and I was blabbering and Gonzalo caught up to me and she grabbed me and she said oh wait wait espera espera I said why why? And I just kept saying the word, por qué? Why did they die? Why am I alive? And those 45 babies and children died. She said, listen, you survived. And you survived for a reason. So you have got to make a decision today that their voices, those 45 voices, are not going to be silenced. So you live your life making noise, thinking of those 45 children. I get back to my monastery, I close the door to my room, and I made a solemn vow 
and it's the only vow in my life that I was able to keep for my whole life up until today. I made this vow that I was going to be the voice of those that had no voice. I was going to spend my life advocating for those that couldn't advocate for themselves, whether because of economics, because of poverty, because of gender, class, gender expression, sexual orientation, I didn't care. I was going to advocate for those that couldn't advocate for themselves in the name of those 45 kids. And that's how I lived my life from that day forward. A uh, few years after that, I reached this point. Uh, they teach you with this saying when you do cross-cultural work, missionary work. And they teach you this saying that when you go to be of service in another culture, always go where you're really, really needed, but not very wanted. And only stay until you are really, really wanted, but not very needed. So I knew it was time to go. I packed my bags. I went back to the United States of America. And immediately, I left the monastery and wrote to the Vatican and said, I want out. I cannot live this life anymore. I am a gay man. And I was dispensed from my vows. And within a month of coming back, I was lucky enough, I found my partner, and we were together for 18 years of a wonderful relationship. It was great. And we had this thriving relationship where we were completely visible to each other and transparent. And I lived my life accordingly. 2015, I get this big break in my job. I get this letter from the Ministry of Education in Peru. And they had asked me to come down for 10 days to travel around the country to help write an anti-bullying program that was going to be implemented in every school in the country. And I hadn't been back since I left. So I said, this is great. I had one condition. I wanted to spend one day in Pamplona Alta looking for Gonzala. I wanted to find Gonzala. So I went down there, and sure enough, I found Gonzala right away. I mean, I was doing my work, but I had a couple of days extra, and I found Gonzala. We spent a full day together catching up. She had since married, had become a mother and a grandmother now, and we were catching up. So I was asking her, you know, what are your feelings about what happened at that time? And I also chose that time to say, do you know, did you know at that time that I was gay? She said, you know, I always had that feeling, but I wanted to honor your desire to remain hidden. But you know something, Richard, and she called me Richard. <laughs> she said, you know something? Remember when I taught you that story about the mamas that don't name their babies until they know that they're going to flourish? I said, yeah, I do remember that very well. She said, hermano Marcos wasn't ready to flourish. Richard is ready to flourish. And I felt so relieved that I could be seen by her. I leave her, I go back to my hotel room and I'm packing to go to Iquitos, the jungle. And a couple of hours into the night, I get a message from the front desk, there's a package down here for you. And I got all excited, I said, I'm gonna get something maybe from the government, something like that. I go down and I see this little box and I have this idea what it is. And there's a note on top. And I open it up, and it's a note from Gonzala. And it said, Sigue siendo la voz por los 45. Y sigue siendo la voz por los que no tienen voz. You keep being the voice for those 45 kids. And you keep being the voice for those that don't have any voice. 
and I opened up the box, and sure enough, it was a Gonzala cake. <laughs> and it was decorated on the top with a rainbow flag. <laughs> 30, <laughs> 35 years ago, I said this silly prayer on a plane. In a little while, and you will see me no more. And then in a little while, and you will see me again. Once I got that cake, I knew I could continue being about the business of being seen again. Thank you. I was clean, a patron I was young and an actress When you knelt by my mattress And asked for my hand But I was sad, you asked it As I laid in a black dress With my father in a casket I had no plans yeah. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is the Lumineers behind me now, and we just heard from Richard Cardillo. Now, I have so many fantastic live shows coming up to announce, and we need you guys to be pitching us your stories for these shows. So I'm going to tell you the dates, and I'll tell you, you know, information you need to know about how to pitch us because you could be a part of these shows on march 17th we are back at the bootleg theater in los angeles brian babylon sovereign sire matt kershen sarah faith alterman and riley silverman will be at that show that's march 17th in la at the bootleg on march 22nd we're back at caveat in new york city i talked about that earlier on april 7th we have a very special show at the Abrams Arts Center in New York for NYC PodFest. We'll have a lot more to say about that soon. But on April 21st, we're finally coming back to Pittsburgh. On April 21st, we're back in Pittsburgh at the Rex Theater. Now, you can pitch us for that show. There's three optional themes to choose from. Embarrassing, Misfits, or Trapped. So if any of those themes spur a story in your mind, pitch us at pitches at wrist-show.com. On May 17th, we are in Kansas City, Kansas. In fact, we're in Lawrence, Kansas, but it's very near Kansas City. So we're in Lawrence, Kansas, but right near Kansas City. On May 17th, there are three optional themes for stories that night disgust trapped or coincidence so may 17th in kansas city kansas actually in lawrence but you get the idea on may 18th we are in st louis we're finally coming back to st louis we had such a phenomenal show the last time we were there may 18th the optional themes are we were young abusive or guilty pleasure 
on May 25th, we're back in Atlanta. <laughs> it was a crazy show the last time we were in Atlanta. Um, May 25th, the optional themes are plans and schemes, love, or rebellion. How do you pitch us for those shows? You go to risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a video there. There's an audio lecture you can listen to. There's lots of tips on how to prepare a pitch that will get our attention and how to start thinking through the story you want to tell. And you email your pitches to pitches at risk-show.com. So for all of those shows where I listed those optional themes, April 21st in Pittsburgh, May 17th in Kansas City, May 18th in St. Louis, May 25th in Atlanta, pitch us your stories. And feel free to even email me directly at Kevin at Risk-Show if you have any questions about how to pitch us. Tell your friends to pitch us too. Again, don't forget to pre-order the Risk book at theriskbook.com. You can email me the screenshot of the confirmation that you have pre-ordered it, and you might be eligible to get a little gift from me, like my singing Sessie Jules name throughout this entire episode. For everything else, just look us up at risk-show.com or on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all at Risk Show. And if you're interested in our teaching, go to thestorystudio.org for training, uh, for storytelling on the stage or storytelling for business. That is at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk. Now a nurse in white shoes leads me back to my guest room. It's a bed and a bathroom and a place for the end. I won't be late for this, late for that, late for the love of my life. And when I die alone, when I die alone, die I'll be on time. Sassy chosed, sassy chosed. Here's the last time I'll sing about sassy chosed. Wouldn't it be great if she emailed to say, Thanks so much, but it's. CC. I mean, if it's CC, then fuck that shit. <laughs>